0: At this time I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We have been doing a theme or a series on what it means to follow Christ, follow me. I mentioned several times uh, by Jesus in various parts of the Gospels in different ways. And so we're going to be looking at another one of those passages of what it means to follow, follow Jesus. And I think this is a, really a theme uh, of a Christian life. What does it mean to follow Christ? And not just a New Year's resolution for this year, but really for every day and for every year as well. Once you find your place there, John chapter 12, we're going to read a few verses, if you're able to. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20, the Bible says, "...and there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was a Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus." Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and Andrew and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there also shall my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. title of today's message is Serving and Following Christ. What does it mean to serve and follow Christ? A lot of that could be said on that, but uh, I was kind of thinking of a few different people um, that I've read about, uh, missionary biographies, especially. By the way, I encourage you, if you do reading, I, I try to read several books a year, and I always try to include at least one or two biographies, especially maybe missionary biographies or someone who served the Lord in different capacities. What a blessing it is to read those stories, those accounts, and to see that. I want to share with one of you briefly one of those this morning. This is the testimony of missionary William Borden. William Borden, really an amazing uh, figure. I know I have, first of all, before I go on, has anyone ever heard of William Borden before? Okay, there's actually some debate, is this the Borden with Borden Cheese? It's not, it's, it's actually from, they had a rich mining company, I'll explain more about that in a moment. But he was part of the student volunteer movement uh, that went into missions back in the later 1800s. So uh, William Borden was born November 1st in 1887 in Illinois. Uh, his father was a millionaire, like I said, because of the, the mining business that was out west. Uh, earlier in life, uh, William Borden had come to Christ through the ministry of D.L. Moody, especially actually, the whoever she actually preached, was uh, his assistant was R.A. Torrey. So that's how he, he got saved. Anyways, after he graduated from high school uh, in Pennsylvania at this time, his parents then gifted him a trip around the world. Uh, for those who have graduating kids coming up, wouldn't you like to gift your kids a trip around the world? All right. <laughs> He's a millionaire. Okay. But it's interesting what God did in the life of William Borden through that trip around the world. He actually had a chaperone who went within the Orient and many different areas, and but this experience was instrumental in motivating William Borden to become a missionary. He really had a heart for the people that he uh, he saw while he was traveling. He later uh, then after that he went and attended college at Yale, and his godly testimony greatly impacted his fellow students. In fact, one of his uh, a well known professor at Yale commented that William Borden has done more for the cause of Christ than any student he's encountered before. I wish William Borden would go back to Yale. Amen. Okay. But with that, at Yale, his godly testament greatly impacted his fellow students. There he started Bible studies and prayer groups and a great number of students there at Yale actually joined him for that. But Borden was also known for ministering in the area to the most oppressed, the outcast in town, including even the disabled. After graduating from college, he then attended Princeton Seminary, after which then he was ordained to be a missionary at Moody Church. Actually, was on staff at at Moody Bible Institute uh, during those early years. But nonetheless, he was ordained to be a missionary at Moody Church. Many couldn't understand his decision, though, because he had received such a large inheritance after his father was passed away. In other words, William Borden became a millionaire. Through that, he, was, he, he was, got that inheritance. But people wonder, why would you do this? One friend told him that he would be throwing away his life if he w- would be a missionary. Borden's reply to him was this, well, you've never seen heathenism. I think that's very, very telling there. Well, it was then, finally, after some years, in December of 1912, William Borden then traveled to Egypt, to Cairo, and there it was to study Islam and Arabic. And he did that in order to learn how to reach Muslims of Western China. That was really his focus, was the Muslims of Western China. So Borden then dedicated his life to that. So then he set sail, like I said, to Cairo, and there he began his studies. Borden, his desire was to serve and to follow Jesus by calling others to see him, such is the life of William Borden. And we'll, by the way, like with Paul Harvey, we'll find out the rest of the story towards the end on that. But as we think about that, here's a, a man who dedicated his whole life, really gave his life to the cause of Christ And his fortune that he had inherited, that he grew up with, the pleasures that he he could have had, he put that to the side because his focus was on Jesus Christ. So what can we glean from that? Well, as we look in the text here today in John chapter 12, we're gonna see what does Jesus call or require of those who who would dare follow him? Who would follow him? And so I think it's interesting here, it says in verse 20 again, there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. What is going on here is that this is the time of Passover. And uh, just in a few verses before this, we read of the triumphal entry when Jesus came down the Mount of Olives on the donkey, and the people shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the Son of David. They, they made these, these cries, they waved the palm branches, and so this is in preparation, again, for Passover. That was just to be in a couple days. And, of course, we've got to understand that in the context of this passage, this that we are here just a couple days before Jesus is betrayed, who is tried, he goes to the cross, and he dies for us. So this is really within the Passion Week, within that time that people are looking at him. So with that in mind... There are Greeks that are there now. Who are these Greeks exactly? These Greeks, uh, there's some debate about it. But they were, first of all, not, not Jewish. There's some question that if they could, they could have maybe been uh, uh, God-fearing Greeks. Think of like uh, Cornelius later on in the Book of Acts. He was one who feared God, uh, for example. Not necessarily Greek, but still a Gentile in that regard. So there are there are some questions about that, but nonetheless. They were, they were kind of without the camp. And I think there's something interesting what is going on here. So in John chapter 12, as we see the Greeks, this should remind us something. Here we are at the end of Jesus' life, but that should remind us of the, of the wise men who came from the east during the time of Jesus' birth. So here's what uh, a little bit of a paraphrase from one commentator. These men from the west, from Greeks, okay, they came to see Jesus at the end of his life just as the wise men came from the east after his birth. But these Greeks, they came to the cross of a king instead of his cradle. So I think that's an interesting parallel, and uh, in kind of if you want to say book ends of Jesus' life, beginning of his life, here comes wise men from the east. At the end of his life, here comes Greeks from the west to see him. But as they're going to see, in just a few days, he's going to be on the cross. Very possibly, it's a little bit argument from silence, but these Greeks probably were around when Jesus was crucified, buried, and perhaps rose again. They could have been in town for that. What an amazing thought. But they had this question. And so what it is, it says they this it says in verse 21, the same came therefore to Philip, which was a Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. So they came and they found Philip somewhere there in Jerusalem, maybe near the temple, we're not sure, but nonetheless they found Philip. It's interesting uh, why they found Philip. Philip here uh, the word Philip, his name is actually a Greek name from Bethsaida. This is up in the north, but this area of of uh, Decapolis. In this area, there was Greek influence. Maybe there was some connection that they pointed, They found Greek. I think more more importantly, or not, it was God who orchestrated that meeting. Okay, but as they said, they found Philip and they desired. They asked him, saying, "Sir, we would see Jesus." They knew that he was one of of Jesus' disciples. Okay, so this is important to understand this. But what happens next is interesting. It says in verse 22, Then Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. So what does Philip do? The Greeks come to, hey, we want to see Jesus. Can we see Jesus? Okay. And Philip says, well, let me go. And so he goes and he finds Andrew. By the way, it's interesting that you see Andrew and Philip kind of pair together off and on throughout the Gospels. And then he comes to Andrew, and it's interesting why Andrew is included in this story. Because Andrew is interesting, normally when you find Andrew in the gospel accounts, what is he doing? He's usually bringing someone or introducing someone to Jesus. You see that pattern. For example, there, in each of the gospels, there's the re- record of the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, there's five loaves and two fish, right? And they fed that whole multitude. Well, who brought that? It was a young boy who brought his lunch. Out of the five thousand and more people, there was one boy who was smart enough to bring his lunch. Okay, all right. With that in mind, what? How did that happen? That young boy actually found Andrew, and Andrew was the one who brought that boy to Jesus, and then Jesus performed the miracle. So you see this pattern going on throughout that throughout Scripture. But the question is this: Why do they want to bring to Jesus? Because they had this question, Sir, we would see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. We want to. We want to know Him. So here's the idea. We would see Jesus. I think in John's gospel, when it talks about people who would see Jesus, this is really a picture of faith. In other words, these Greeks probably knew about Jesus, what he had done. They probably have heard or uh, at least heard of the miracles, the teachings that he had, had done and what he talked about. And so they want to know more. And I believe here that there, it was, this is was based on faith. It wasn't just a simple curiosity. Hey, we've heard some exciting things about Jesus. Hey, let's, let's go meet him. We've got to get his autograph you know there's a lot of people who are, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago there people are fans of Jesus but they're not really followers of Jesus you understand there's people who said yeah i just i'll, I'll put a you know a Jesus sticker on or whatever else like that and we're a fan but we really do it on our terms i believe that these Greeks they were actually serious in the fact that they want to see Jesus that their faith would grow from that so as we see this very very important we would see Jesus this is a picture of faith It's interesting that this here, also another thing is this, the Greeks here are really, like I said, they're not Jewish, they're Gentile. The gospel, in John's gospel, his focus is this, that this is a message, a gospel that is really for the world. For God so loved, not the Jews, for God so loved, what? The world, Jew and Gentile, that he gave his only begotten son. But John's gospel, if you could sum up, John, why have you written this book? Why why is this gospel here for us? You can sum up this way in John 20, verse 31. In fact, hold your place here in John 12. I want you to see that. Go with me to John chapter 20. And here we find the purpose of the book of John. John chapter 20 and verse 31. Okay? It says here, But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. This is the purpose of John's gospel right here. This is written, what you have read here is written that, oh, yeah, this is a great, interesting read, let's move on. No, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He's God, very God, man, very man. And that believing you might have life through his name. In other words, your life can be forever changed through Jesus Christ. And so I got to stop right now and ask this. Are you like those Greeks that would see Jesus That you truly want to know who Jesus is. If you're here today and you do not know for sure of your eternal destiny, what your life is really about, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. The thing is this, that we all have sin that separates us from a holy God. And we desperately need forgiveness. We desperately need cleansing to be clean. There's only one way that that can happen is that by trusting in Jesus Christ, who paid the price for our sins on the cross. What a blessing it is to know that has happened. I pray that you have come to know Jesus Christ personally and that your heart would be as these Greeks did, that you would see Jesus. So the application really of this is this is a faith to see Jesus. Do you have the faith? Application is this, by seeing Jesus, this leads us to serve and follow Christ. And as Philip and Andrew did, let's bring others to know Christ. Bring others to know Christ. So let's now continue on in the count here. So the question is this, the question is this how we want to see Jesus, but how do you see Jesus? How can that be possible? What are we really looking for when we talk about this? Jesus says here now in verse 23, and Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So the question is this from the Greeks, and I pray from you we would we want to see Jesus. I asked to see Jesus. How does someone see Jesus? Okay? is by looking at verse 23, the hour has come, the time is now, that the Son of Man should be glorified. So this phrase here is this. We talk about glorification. Uh, is This is not glorification uh, by the eyes of men. We want to see glory. We want to see a king. We, we, we want to see a parade. We want to see a mighty mighty uh, person coming down you know, to, ru- you know, to rule and, and to flex his muscle and make everything right. I think the, and this is kind of what happened just a few verses before that at the triumphal entry. The, the people saw with their eyes uh, the glory of Christ, humanly speaking, coming down the Mount of Olives. This is his messianic presentation, okay? That's what the triumphal entry is about. But what we see here is Jesus is talking about a different glorification. We view glory as, in just a few weeks, there's going to be someone, a team crowned Super Bowl champions, Champions of the world, even though it's just in America, okay? That's how, we th- that's how American thinks, all right? But nonetheless, we, we think of it in those terms. We think of power. We think of glory. And that is not what God sees when he sees glory. We're going to talk about that in just a moment here. I think another thing, too, is this, that when we see glory and we see God working, we, we want God to change things. We want to make the world better. But really, most people are resistant to that change personally. Man, there's a lot of crime, there's a lot of problems here in in the Twin Cities. And we could spend all day talking about the vices and the problems that are going on. Wouldn't it be great if we had a governor, a president, a commander-in-chief, sergeant-at-arms, whatever title you want to give them, even a county alderman, You know, that they would come and they would take care of business. But I'll be honest with you, most people, they want that change, but they really don't want to be changed themselves. I think that's something we got to really look at. When we talk about Jesus becoming king, that's great. He's king over the world, but you know what? I'm still my own king, and I think that's what's happening right here. So when we think about this, Jesus is saying here, the hours come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So then how do we see Jesus as being glorified? This was Jesus not being glorified so much in the of entry, but this is talking about Jesus' glorification, really on what he was about to do in the next couple days, and that was the glory of the cross. The glory of the cross. The cross where criminals and rebels were nailed and tied to crosses, to posts, and that they would wither away, they would die. Really, we want to glory in that? To the world, the cross, they see it as disgraceful, unworthy. But Jesus saw it as glory. You see, Jesus. His, his thought is this, is, is different, it's, catty, it's, it's really inside out from what we think of what glory should be. He says this, that the cross is, that's what was on Jesus' mind during this time. It's interesting, he's not really answering these Greeks per se, but in a sense that he's answering it to the world. The hour has come. What it means is this: that the time has come. The hour has come. Before, when Jesus did other miracles, like when he changed the water into wine, for example, he says this: "My hour is not yet come. My time is not." What he means is this: it's not ready to. I'm not ready to do what I am here to do. But he says, "Now it is. Now the hour has come." In other words, there is no going back from it. His 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 heart, his eyes are set on the cross to do what he came to give his life a ransom for many. That's what he came to do. Here's the thing. Jesus, for those who would see Jesus, actually let me go back. How is Jesus seen? How is he glorified? Jesus said actually go with me just a couple verses in verse 23, John 12 23. Jesus says this, and if I I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. He's talking about the manner in which he would die on the cross. If I be lifted up I will draw all men to me. That's how he's glorified. And those who would see Jesus must see him in the glory of the cross. If you want to see Jesus Christ, you look to the cross. You look to what he has done for us. So serving and following Jesus calls us to look to the cross. So with that, how then should we serve and follow him? We talk about seeing Jesus, and I pray that through the cross that you have trusted Jesus Christ for what he did, that he died in your place for your sin, to be your king over your heart. I pray you have come to, come to that place of understanding. He said, yes, I have. Pastor, I have trusted Jesus Christ. My sins are forgiven. I believe what Jesus did for me, and I'm thankful for that. Okay, I pray you've done that. But now what do we do? How then do we follow and serve him? And this is what Jesus would do. So here's the model to serve and follow Jesus. Look with me now in verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. So beginning there in verse 24, except a corn of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So what are we talking about here? So this is really talking about what Jesus would do. It's interesting, he uses this, This picture, talking about corn or a kernel, a grain of wheat, if it falls in the ground, if you put it in the ground, if those who have planted, you know anything about planting, you take that seed, the seed by itself doesn't do anything. It's just there. But what happens if you put that seed in the ground? What happens? It dies. But what happens? Through that death springs forth life, springs forth fruit. And that's the purpose. Jesus is saying here about his own death that he would die like that, and it would also bring forth fruit. But not just Jesus, but those who would serve and follow Jesus would must also die to self. That's Jesus' own example. You see, a seed will never become a plant unless it dies and is buried. The death and burial of Jesus were necessary for his glorification. And Jesus' death brought forth life. Here's the thing, I like what... Uh, Uh, Another commenter says this, If this is true of Jesus, it must be true of his followers. The only thing that we can see spiritual fruit in our lives and following Christ is by dying to self. Folks, you are not in charge of your own kingdom. All right? This isn't your world, folks. This is my Father's world, as we sing the song. And I pray that if we really want to follow Christ, it is dying to self. Jesus, others, others, and then you, okay? So how important it is. So with that, here's the application here in verse 25: He that loveth his life shall lose it; he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it until eternal life. So what's this talking about here? It's interesting. He that loves his life shall lose it. In other words, if you if you put all your efforts into this world, okay. There's, there's an old saying this, that you know, it used to be a bumper sticker. Right? I haven't seen it around much, but you probably have heard it or read it. He who dies with the most toys wins. But I got a question for you. He who dies with the most toys still dies. You don't see a, a U-Haul being pulled by a hearse unless you're in West Virginia. That's another story another time. But nonetheless, you don't usually, you don't see that. That's not common because you can't take it with you, Folks. You can't take it with you. So what then are you living for? What are, what's our purpose? What is our focus? So the thing is this, don't waste your life. That's the idea of this passage. He that loves his life shall lose it. If you invest everything in into this life, you're going to lose it. Invest in what is eternal. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep eternal life. So are you supposed to hate your life? Man, that sounds like you're really hard on yourself. What are we talking about? The idea is this, the idea of hate here, it says, when the issue is between Christ and the dearest things of life, one who keeps his soul for eternal life by losing his life each time here. So this is an interesting thought. We're talking about this, he that loves his life shall lose it. He that hates his life in this in this life, this is talking about losing your life each time. It's, it's In the Greek, it has the idea of a progressive thing. This is not a once and for all, hey, I'm saved, okay, I'm just going to live for the Lord now, not live for myself, I'm good. I don't know what if you in the more if, if you but you know who my worst enemy is. I look at men in the mirror every morning. And there's a lot of days I don't like what I see. Okay, I have to battle with my flesh. I have to battle with with uh, even my sin nature that I deal with. Okay, every day as Paul says, I die daily. This is something that we have to do regularly each time. So how important this is. The only way to then here is this: uh, it says here, he would hates his life in this world shall keep it until eternal life. Keep it or guard it until eternal life. What does this mean? It says the, the, the way that we keep or guard our life is by being true to Christ. That's how we do it. How then do we lose our life? It's by really being true to Christ. Those who follow Christ are then called to hate their life. It's, this is a hyperbole, okay? This is the idea. Uh, those who are called to hate their life, it's, it's really a hyperbole. This does not mean to disregard your life. Don't be haphazard. Don't be, um, don't be silly with that. That's not the idea Here is, We're not supposed to disregard it, but rather give it freely up to God. In other words, our life should be this, that we should have an undivided love for God. That's what this is about. We should have an undivided love for God. How important it is that we need it. You know, Jesus said in another gospel in Matthew 10 that he who does not hate his father, his mother, his brethren, his sisters, is really not worthy of me. It says, wait a minute, are we supposed to hate our relatives? Hate our parents? Hate our brothers? Again, it's a hyperbole. In other words, compared to them, our relationship with Christ should be far greater. And when someone looks at you and said, man, that loves up his family, but that person has a great love for Christ. By the way, if you have a great love for Christ, you're going to naturally love your family. Warts and all, right? Okay? You get to a family reunion, some days you're looking at each other like, oh boy, what a, why am I in this, right? <laughs> is there another f- a family I can rent for the weekend? You know, type of thing. Sometimes we think that. However, when we think about it, if our view of Christ is, pre- um, uh, is predominant, our love for Christ is strong, guess what? That love will flow to others, including our family. How important that is. So in doing this, is it comfortable then to do this? really to deny self, to basically live and only for the Lord like that. It's not exactly easy, but let me just say this. I like what, um, what we're called to do in Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a, what, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable in God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That means we're giving our lives to the Lord for his service, whatever he calls to do, serving and following him. I like what uh, Warren Worsby said concerning this. Uh, Interesting quote. He says this, a lot of times in our Christian life, or just life in general, we want to be comfortable. But God does not expect us to be comfortable. But he does uh, expect us to be conformable. In other words, if you live a life for comfort, I want to make sure, man, I have a comfortable home, everything's good, comfortable family. What happens is this, that's self-preservation. It's not others, it's not outward focus. Okay, the thing is this, there's a lot of times when we think about change, people are okay with changing until it affects them. I'm great with change, unless it affects me, all right? This is the idea. But as Warren Worsby says, God doesn't expect us to be comfortable, he expects us to be conformable, conforming to Christ. And guess what, when you are following Christ, it's not comfortable. God never promised an easy path. He never did so how important is it for us to trust so which one are you are you living a life of comfort and that's what you're striving to do or are you living a life that's conformable to Christ how do we know that Romans 12 verse 2 says and be not conformed to this world don't get comfortable in this world folks because this world is going to pass away The monies you save, the car you get, the boat you have, and whatever else you want to throw, whatever your favorite thing is, this world, it will pass away. It won't last forever. Don't focus on, lay not for yourself treasures on this earth where moth and rust grub, where thieves break through and steal. Rather, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. This is the idea. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God doesn't expect us to be comfortable, but to be conformable to him. In that we should hate or disregard our life in this world. Don't waste your life. Understand that we are pilgrims on this earth. Live for eternity, as the song goes. This world is not my home. What? I'm just a passing through. This is the idea. We're pilgrims on this earth, folks. And there's something far greater in Hebrews chapter eleven, the Hall of Faith. We read of those who basically they lived. They, their ideas were this: the city, the life that was yet to come looking forward to the promises that would be fulfilled. So that's the model to serve and follow Christ is by dying to self. Now let's apply that, the honor in serving, the honor of serving and follow Christ. It says in verse 26, If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there also my servant shall be. If any man serve me, him will my Father honor. Every believer, and I'm talking to everyone here today, if you're here as a child of God, Everyone here is called to serve and follow Christ. Let me just say this, God's will for your life is not just to sit in a pew at Victory Baptist Church. I'm glad you're here, but God wants you to serve and follow him. and everything you do, not just on Sunday mornings, but in every part of your life, let God work in and through you. Die to self, live for God, live for eternity. I like what, uh, by the way, this is an act of calling. This is not something that, guess what? Again, every day we have to do this, okay? Charles Spurgeon said this, all who would have Christ as your Savior be willing to serve him. We are not, by the way, we are not saved by service, okay? But we are saved to service, okay? That's the point. You're not saved by service. Man, you could do all kinds of things here at the church, and I'd be thankful for that. We'd be thankful But that will not save you. That won't even sanctify you, folks. But guess what? If you are saved, you will have a heart to serve. Ask yourself that question. Am I trying to be comfortable in my Christian life? Or am I really trying to conform to the image of Christ? Where is your heart? Where is your desire? This is something we all need to do. Okay? As we say here, it says, If any man serve me. What is the idea of serving there in verse 26? serve there... The Greek word is diakonos. Diakonos is where we get our word deacon from, okay? And diakonos is used because it's especially for a servant at attendance, uh, someone who, like, serves a table or elsewhere. Uh, There's another word for a servant or a slave, and that's a doulos. A doulos, though, uh, as a slave, can serve at a distance, can serve somewhere out there, another part of the house. But a diakonos is someone who serves or attends to the side of his master, to the side of a king, to serve the king. And so this is talking about that tender relationship that we have with, with the Lord. So the office of the diakonos, of the servant, may seem humble, but it's honored and valued by the Father who crowns life. To serve and to follow Christ is to walk with him closely. What does it mean to serve Christ and to follow him? What do, how do we do that? What does this look like? This is where he's going to get really practical here today. How do we serve and follow Christ? The way we do it is to walk with him closely. Walk with him closely. In other words, where he leads, we will follow. Keep close to him. Keep close to Christ. When Whatever he asks, we will serve. That's true obedience. Service is obedience to God. When God speaks, we will listen, not relying on our own wisdom. A lot of times when God lists, you know, when sometimes people are talking to you, they're, they're hearing you, but they're really not listening to you. Have you ever noticed that? Because a lot of times, whether we realize or not, someone's talking to us, and we're actually thinking about what we're going to say to them. That's, and that's just part of our nature, or, you know, call it a blessing or a curse, okay? <laughs> but nonetheless, when we hear God's voice, we will listen, not relying on our own wisdom. How important. This is how we serve and follow Christ. And serving and and following Christ go together. Jesus, again, has many admirers, but few followers. If we call others to follow Christ, though, like Andrew did and Philip, let us follow him ourselves. Don't just say, yeah, you should go to church, but you don't go yourself. Yeah, you should read the Bible. It's good for you. But you haven't read it in a month. Folks, there's something we need to do a heart check on this. Within that, serving and following Christ, there's a promise and this is a good note. The promise is this, that those who serve Christ will be honored. It says at the end here, And if any man serve me, him will my Father honor. You see, the reward for serving Jesus is to receive honor from God the Father. And in that we share in the glory of Christ. We will be glorified as well through that. What a blessing that is. So those who would see Christ, Jesus, must see him in the glory of the cross. Those who believe in Jesus are given new life through his death, burial, and resurrection. And this life compels us to daily serve and follow Jesus. So what does this look like in a practical sense? Earlier, we talked about William Borden, the missionary who was a millionaire. and gave his life to go and reach the Muslims of Western China. Again, he set sail. In, in December of 1912, and he headed to Cairo, Egypt, to study Islam and to learn Arabic. And again, his goal was to reach these Muslims in China. But sometime after he had got there, and as he began his studies, but sometime close to Easter of 1913, he was stricken with spinal meningitis. And he died April 9th, 1913, less than five months after arriving in Egypt. He was only 25 years old was that a wasted life he was a millionaire he could do whatever he wanted he could have gone wherever he wanted he could have worked whatever he wanted but here's the thing I like this is Warren Worsby's reflections on William Borden why should such a gifted life be cut short perhaps the best answer was given one of Borden's missionary friends he said concerning Borden I have absolutely no feeling of a life cut short A life abandoned to Christ cannot be cut short. Think about that. A life abandoned to Christ cannot be cut short. A missionary is immortal until his task is finished. Okay, It is not the length of a person's life that matters, but the strength of one's influence for God. A Judas would read Borden's life and sneer, why this waste? But our Lord would evaluate it differently. Borden's desire was to magnify Christ, whether it be by life or by death. And God gave him his desire. You know, most people would regard Borden's death as a tragedy. However, God took the tragedy and did something far greater than Borden could ever do himself. Like that kernel, like that grain that went to the ground, would die and bring forth much fruit. Even so, the kernel of William Borden, his life, was like that kernel put in the ground, he died and brought forth much much fruit. And after this news went around, went around quickly, even during those times, when thousands of young people read of Borden's story, it inspired them to leave all that they had and give their lives to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thousands and thousands of young people surrendered to the cause of Christ in foreign missions and went around the world through one man who says, yes, Lord, I will follow and I will serve you. I will die to myself and I will love you. It was told that William Borden wrote in his Bible these words throughout different times of his life. He wrote these words, no reserves, no retreat." No regrets. No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. That is a life of one given to God. In that, through this story and through this passage we've read today, we are compelled to daily serve and follow Jesus Christ. What is a, it is an honor to deny self, to serve at the hand of our Savior and follow him daily. Don't waste your life. Let us be wholly given to God And this is a life that God will honor, serve, and follow Christ.